With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. The N-OLED display in the Cadillac Escalade has 38 total diagonal inches of color display. So why do we give it a curve too? I guess you could say we like to bend the rules. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade never stop arriving. Well, they walked into Madrid with hope in their hearts and they'll walk away with the greatest prize in club football. Jurgen Klopp and Liverpool's king to the cot are champions of Europe once again. Hello and welcome to another episode of Cock and Fracker, your podcast dedicated to all things LFC on the Touchline Fracker Network. I'm your host, Fahi. Alongside me, I have Ellis, Farouk, Krish, and another special guest. Please welcome the Athletics, James Pierce. Thanks for coming on, James. We've been inundated with requests to have you on the hot seat, so we're like really glad to finally make it happen. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, nice to be with you guys. Are you okay? All good. All good. Thank you very much. Everyone else, how are you guys doing? Yeah, not too bad. Yeah, not too bad. Yeah. Uh, thank James. you for taking your time, James. Yep. James, how are you finding lockdown? Uh, do you know what? It's just, it's like Groundhog Day, isn't it? I think you, you lose track of what day of the week it is because you're just in this routine now of being so limited in terms of what you can do and, I don't know, just even little things, isn't it? Like, just being able to go to the pub, you suddenly... Suddenly, you have this uh, newfound appreciation of all these little things that you previously took for granted. So, um, yeah, I mean, time's actually gone pretty fast because I've been trying to juggle work with um, homeschooling two kids at the same time. So that's been that's been fun and games. So, um, but uh, yeah, just about surviving. So, are you looking forward to the start when it does happen? If it does happen, or are you like itching at the feet now? Yeah, I can't wait. Yeah, just, uh, you know, football is such a, a big part of our lives, isn't it? So, um, you know, when it when it's taken away, God, it, you don't have, doesn't have to give you a, a newfound appreciation of it. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's going to be strange when it does come back, because I think it's going to be a long time before we see football grounds full of fans again. But, um yeah, hopefully, you know, at th- the moment they're working on kind of like around that June the 8th is the is the date that's been banded around. Hopefully that'll be when we see Premier League football back in- initially. Of course, it'll be behind closed doors. Yeah, so like, what are your thoughts on like the most recent stories? So obviously, we see daily updates, which is obviously quite irritating at times. But what are your thoughts on like the most recent stories where there's it feels as if there's a bit of self-service by the lower position clubs? And with what they're kind of proposing about, you know, they'll only play if there's no relegation, et cetera, et cetera. Like, what do you think about that? Yeah, you know, I think 
what we're seeing is blatant self-interest, isn't it? From from you know a lot of clubs, and I, and I think you probably can't. I don't think I don't think it's probably fair to to just point a finger at the bottom five or six who we're led to believe are the ones that are kind of dragging their heels on this neutral venues idea. I think because every club, every club in these meetings is looking after their own interests. I mean, you know, of course, the the ones further up the table have actually got a lot less to lose um, when you think of the financial implications of getting relegated from the Premier League. So um, it's, you know, it, it is, a you know, it's it's a real difficult one to, to try and make sense of at the moment because you, you know you're trying to speak to as many p- different people at different you know at, at, you know different layers of the game from players through to to coaches and executives and I think everyone's got a different opinion on what the what the way forward should be um, and it is you know it's going to be very very difficult to try and get some kind of widespread agreement you know we're expecting you know, a, a, you know a, another big Premier League meeting next week which will you know the significance of that is is really important because it will be after Boris Johnson would have announced you know what we hope will be the yeah. first stage in in easing restrictions. Um, but yeah, I mean at the moment the because they feel as if not every ground in the Premier League would would be in a position to to you know adhere to all of the the social distancing measures and all the rest of it. Um, and, you know, and I think they're keen to keep games away from grounds that are in residential areas um, to lessen the chance of fans congregating outside stadiums. So, you know, the, the latest one is that, you know, eight to ten grounds being used um, and, you know, no team effectively playing any of their remaining games at home. You know, it's it's not, you know, it's far from ideal. And I, and I do sympathise with those teams down near the bottom who would say, well, hang on a minute, you know, you got to play such and such at home with your fans, you know, we're now going to have to play them. Our home game is now going to be 100 miles away in an empty ground. I, I get that. But, you know, I think the implications of not finishing this season are, are absolutely huge. You know, I've never really understood this argument of null and void and let's just draw a line under this season and think about next season. That, that to me, is just absolutely nonsensical. You have to complete this season. Um, you know, and, and the sooner that happens, the better. You know, obviously when it's... When it's safe to do so, but you know, there's going to have to be some compromises because th- th- there isn't there isn't one kind of there isn't a perfect scenario where this where this is going to suit everyone. You know, I think people clubs are going to have to accept that they're going to have to to give to give a bit on this because um, you know, we 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 just need football back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So carrying on with that, James, um, have you heard any reluctance from Melwood in regards to like? not playing or obviously we want to get the season done have you heard anything from Liverpool no not certainly not reluctance I think um you know from the players I've spoken to that they're all keen to get back playing again I think their their only thing is they don't want to be in a position where they feel like you know that they're almost being forced into doing it or that the Premier League is coming back too soon I think you know the the players I've spoken to their, their 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 position is look we'll we'll listen to the health experts um but we want to be 100 percent sure that it's that it's safe you know we, we don't want to be pushed into a situation where suddenly you know our health could be at risk you know our family's health could be at risk um so you know i think at the moment there's kind of like i'd say kind of like cautious cautious optimism that football will be back by the by the middle of June because you know hopefully as well by you know things have changed a lot you know over the last five six weeks so let's hope you know in five six weeks time um, you know football won't be the only industry starting to get back to some sense of, of normality um, by that point and um, yeah you can you know of course Liverpool probably more than any other club in that Premier League. Are, are keen to get back because you know they're just two wins away from from achieving what no Liverpool team has achieved for 30 years and you know although it won't be it won't feel the same as it as it would have done if if they'd got it wrapped up before the shutdown um you know it's it's still it's still a special achievement um, obviously you're fairly used to reporting from the actual stadiums themselves um have you and your colleagues you know from the athletic and in the industry in general had any concerns or would you feel comfortable reporting from the from the neutral venues or would you prefer to uh, report from them from home? 
No, per- personally, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have any concerns if if I'm a, if if I'm allowed to go to one of the neutral venues. I think that's one of the things that's up in the air at the moment because I don't know whether it will be you know the, the usual kind of number of media that they'll allow in, or you know it, it wouldn't surprise me if it was a you know because I think they'll want to try and keep the numbers inside the stadiums to the absolute minimum. It may well be that they go down the route of of only having um, the rights holders media, so you know, which which would just be kind of like BT and Sky and and B and Sport and and you know the the, the half a dozen other global rights holders. So, um, but you know, yeah, if 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 they do widen that and do allow in those of us who would usually go to games, I personally, I'd have I'd have no I'd have no concerns because. Um, I, do, I just think you, it's just a case of being sensible, isn't it? And um, you know, and I and I think I think the vast majority, you know, the, the vast vast majority of fans, I think, would be would be really sensible as well when football came back. I think, you know, I don't think it was particularly helpful the mayor of Liverpool coming out last week and and saying that these plans were nonsensical because he he felt that fans would, you know, thousands of them would just rush outside Anfield and and celebrate and all the rest of it. I think. The, the vast majority of people have ad- adhered to all the rules du- during the lockdown, and I, and I think that would continue when when football comes back. Okay, so James, how have you found it like this season uh, doing match reports? Given that we've lost one game, well in the league anyway, and drawn one other and one twenty nine, have you found it a bit like creatively? Have you struggled to <laughs> find something else to <laughs> write yeah, about? It's funny actually because I think. What's probably helped on that front was moving from the Echo to the Athletic. I kind of, you know, the the way that the Athletic do things is kind of, you know, really moved away from the kind of traditional match report that, you know, when I was at the Echo, I'd have to file a thousand words on a game within an hour of the final whistle, and probably half or three quarters of that would be kind of analysis, and the other and the other bit would be kind of the the actual events of the game. Well, um, you know, with the Athletic. You know, now I don't file a piece from the game until usually about you know certainly if it's a Saturday afternoon game I wouldn't file until the Sunday afternoon. So what it does do is it gives you you know a lot more time to to kind of think of a theme and and, and develop it and speak to various people and so it's, you know it's it's interesting because you know what, what what I have found is and when when you suddenly cover a Liverpool team that's so ridiculously good and so consistent. It makes you realise that, in actual fact, a lot of the talking points come usually from when a team's not performing well, and you're picking the bones out of what's wrong and where they're falling short, what, why they're falling short, and of course, so that that kind of all of that avenue of of articles has kind of almost been closed off this season because Liverpool yeah. have been so good. But um, but yeah, thankfully, I've kind of you know you even you know like I, there was a few games because because you're right, you you know what you run out of superlatives to use to describe Liverpool this season and you, know, you kind of put, you probably run through the entire team and and the other the other squad players who have played an important part in terms of doing a piece focused just on them so you know I ended up doing things like you know you go to a game and you know you focus on you know the the throw-ins and the work that they've done with Tom, Thomas Gronemark and you know Klopp's Klopp's um you know famed kind of attention to detail and his, his marginal gains and you know, stuff on the nutrition side and you know how they recover quickly between games so I'd say you probably just have to be a lot more creative because um yeah when when a team is winning and winning and winning like Liverpool have done this season um you know it, it does it definitely does become harder to come up with ideas okay, lastly <laughs> on that do you think it takes do you think winning the league if the league is restarted under like the current conditions, do you think it takes a bit of the shine off, you know, Liverpool winning the league after so long? Yeah, I think I think you'd have to, to be completely honest. I think yeah, it does take a bit of the shine off. I mean, you know, I was a Liverpool fan long before I was a journalist reporting on the club, and you know, it does seem a bit, you know, just you know, absolutely bizarre, doesn't it? That now, as we sit here today, the absolute best we can hope for. Is Liverpool winning the Premier League, probably in a neutral venue, in front of you know a hundred people in probably seven weeks' time? And you know you, you think of all the all the times you've thought about you know that 
day you know it will find and you know we, all, we knew it would finally come one day that Liverpool would win the league and you know I remember Liverpool last winning the league in 1990 and I was I was 12 years old then and you just to be honest at the time it was just like oh it's you know it's just yeah. that's almost like an annual event it's no mm. no big deal Liverpool winning the league so yeah I think it does it definitely takes something away from it I mean even you know little things like not being able to have a parade around the city and yeah because I think you know that would have been absolutely sensational, and you know, to be honest, I missed I missed the parade after Madrid last year because I was still I was still in Madrid, so um, you know, I'd, I'd have absolutely loved to have been on that parade this time around and on the media bus that that goes behind the main bus. Um, so yeah, I think it does take a bit away, um, but um, you know, I think we've all probably reached a stage now where where you, we just want it done because it's yeah. been. It's been on hold for for that long, and th- this Liverpool team have been that good um, that they deserve it. And yeah, it's not the way anyone would have wanted it, but I- I'm still looking forward to that day when Jordan Henderson lifts the trophy. And and I think maybe the other thing to factor in is I, I wonder whether it'll also give this group of players huge hunger to go and defend it next season. Because to, to, to almost like that, almost that feeling of, OK, we won it, but it just didn't feel like it should have felt winning it. So, you know, where maybe, you know, a little bit of easing off the gas might have come in on the back of absolutely blowing everyone in the way in the Premier League this season. I wonder whether we might see, you know, Liverpool absolutely bang on it again next season. So um, and hopefully, you know, that will be the time when we get uh get a proper Premier League title triumph and a, and a parade that everyone can enjoy. Yeah, yeah hope, hopefully. Um, yeah, but you're right. It, it, it definitely has taken away the shine because I've never seen Liverpool win the league. So, you know, the fact that all these years we've dreamt about it and we always thought it was going to be that, you know, well win moment, we're going to have the parade and everything. And now it's got to the point where we just want to win the title however we possibly can and we don't even care if we celebrate in Liverpool now we're, we're just happy with how it is um, yeah it is crazy how it's happened but you know it, it's it, it's a crazy situation right now um so we brought you on today to discuss to basically have a flashback moment so we in our group chat we constantly discuss like the most ridiculous and irritating LFC moments that we've seen since Rafa's tenure and obviously you've right. been working since, you know, you've been working for a long time, writing on the club and everything. So we re- really wanted to bring up some topics with you just to see what you thought at the time and looking back at it now, what you actually think. So we've got five different topics. Number one that came up was Roy Hodgson. What were your thoughts when we initially hired him? Like nationally, it was weirdly praised due to his success with Fulham. But locally, yeah. how was it actually taken? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, I, I remember the, the the mood at the time was not was not particularly buoyant as you'd uh, as you'd imagine. I think I think you're right. I think there was a big difference, and there probably still is a big difference now in the way that Hodgson was perceived in Liverpool and 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 the wider footballing community. Certainly in the UK, I think um, you know he'd had that Europa League run, hadn't he, with Fulham that had kind of. Um, you know, it enhanced his his reputation, but I mean, I must admit, I was well and truly, you know, this isn't the, but this isn't hindsight. I was well and truly in the camp of how is this guy anywhere near the Liverpool job? And it does it does almost feel like a bit of a bad dream that he ever was given the opportunity to manage Liverpool. I think, you know, it was. I I, I remember speaking to people at the club at the time, and in terms of the the reasoning behind it, and you know, of, of course, what was you know, the reason? Well, the the reasoning was that Roy Hodgson was almost like a a safe pair of hands and someone who, you know, after all the the, the kind of the infighting and upheaval towards the back end with Rafa Benitez and, you know, and and Rafa, you know, obviously fighting his corner and, you know, the the deteriorating relationship between, you know, certainly kind of him and and Christian Perslow and, you know, and, and of course, you know, Hicks and Gillette were bringing the club to its its knees at the time um so the idea was that you know Roy Hodgson was 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 this kind of safe pair of hands who would just keep things ticking over and wouldn't kick up a fuss would accept the fact that there wasn't going to be you know an awful lot of money to spend on players 
mm. and and would just yeah keep things ticking over until um, new ownership was brought in and a takeover was done. Now, you know, of course, the irony is that rather than being a, you know, he was, you know, as I think I probably wrote far too many times, he was brought in to try and you know, steady the ship, and he ended up nearly sinking it um, <laughs> because he, you know, he was. I, I don't know. You know, it, it, it just. I remember because it was around. It was that was. It was around that time that um, you know I wasn't. I wasn't the Liverpool, the Echoes Liverpool reporter till just after Kenny Dalglish came back. But I was around to the vast majority of games under Hodgson, and yeah, it was. I've never known a fella manage to alienate people at every turn. Like every like he did, you know, it was almost everything. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't helping. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was. I remember the day, the day when he was unveiled as manager, and and, and I think some, you know, some of the questions he was asked were such like such tappings for a manager to like big up his, you know, his new environment. And you know, I remember him, him being asked, you know, how do you think, you know, your handle coming into Anfield compared to Fulham. You know, working with a, a, a more gifted um, group of players, which you know, no one would, would would question that. And and he and he said, "Oh, I think that's very disrespectful to the players I work with at Fulham." And you're like, "Oh my god!" And then you know, and it was, and I remember quite early on, it was it was a home win, and it was in the little, it was after it was his post match press conference after, um, it was yeah, in, in the little media room in the old main stand, and he he came in. It was after a night game. You know, it was a rare home win under him. And I think it was Henry Winter actually said to him, uh, you know, Roy, when when Anfield's buzzing, you know, and rocking like it like it was tonight, is there anywhere better in in European football for for atmosphere? And he just went, San Siro is excellent. Uh, <laughs> Old Trafford can be very good. And you're just like, oh, my God. oh Roy, just God. say no. There's nowhere better than Anfield on a night like tonight. Yeah. And and he did it was, that. It, it was a leading question for him to answer correctly, and he still yeah. failed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know, of course, there's. I mean, there's so many examples. I was sat in the. I was sat in the little media room upstairs at Goodison when, um, you know, having just watched, you know, which still I think in my memory is the the worst Liverpool derby performance I'd, I've ever seen, and uh, see Liverpool lose two 0 mm-hmm. in shambolic fashion, and then he came out and said that was our best performance of the season. Yeah, and, yeah. and you're just thinking, mate, you know, fans who were going away hurt and angry having watched that shambles. You, you, you can't pull the wool over their eyes with ridiculous statements like that. And then, you know, similarly, I was in the press room at Old Trafford when Ferguson had come out and called Torres a diver. And um, one of my colleagues said to said to Hodgson, you know, Ferguson's just called Torres a diver. You know, what, what would you be your response to that? And he, and he said, you know, maybe Sir Alex had a better view of it than I did. And he just like, oh. so, you know, I think in the, in the end, the only surprise was that he managed to last in, until until early January. Because, um, yeah, I was I was actually there at Ewood Park for his last his last game in charge. And that was, you know, that was painful. I think the press officer waved off his press post-match press conference after about two minutes because he you just knew then that he couldn't go on any longer. Yeah, I think I think I remember even seeing Anfield's capacity at, at a point was at like thirty eight thousand. Like fans just weren't showing up. They, they yeah, just yeah. Up watching him. Yeah, I think it, I think it was a game against. I think it might have been Bolton where I think it was eight eight thousand. It was a yeah. sellout, but about eight thousand fans actually chose to stay away. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and I think you know when when that happens, you know the the, write, the writing's on the wall and. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, another um, situation that you found kind of kind of ridiculous was the Suarez and Everett affair. Um, How badly do you think the club regret uh, blindly backing Suarez in the case of taking his word, then later finding out that, well, this guy's blatantly lied to us, and um, when they did find out he lied, how comes or why didn't they go so hard on him? Yeah, I mean, that was a very bleak. Period, trying to trying to cover Liverpool at the time because it was you know it it was it was just handled so badly, wasn't it? And I think you know it was it was good, you know, obviously far far later than it should have been, but it was good to you know earlier on this season to hear Patrice Evra talk about how he'd received a letter from Liverpool, you know, apologising for for the way they handled it. And I think 
I think when you when you, when you actually read back over all the details and you, you just realise how it was just right right from straight after the game it was handled badly because I think yeah. and and I think I think a lot of that was the emotion of the Liverpool Man United rivalry. I think I think if that had been a different club that ever you know if that had been ever a playing for West Brom or Aston Villa I think I think Liverpool's response would have been different. I think they got caught up in the you know the the rivalry of of that. I think um, you know you had all this business with like the nuances of of, of what Suarez had said, and you know and and you know because, because you know he he was a very popular figure in the dressing room. I think that was the that was the thing as well. And so it was I think I think it was just a difficult situation for everyone. And I think what it needed was someone in authority, and of course Damien Camoli was was the man at that time who you know should have been all over it in terms of leading Liverpool's response. He should have been big enough to take a step back and go, hang on a minute, you know, regardless of the nuances of what you said or what you meant by it, you know, you said something that Patrice Ever found massively offensive. Now whether you actually meant, you know, t- to be as a, as offensive as he th- thought you were, that is actually pretty irrelevant. You know, that you know, in, and I think, you know, if if early on an apology had been forthcoming and all the rest of it, I just I just think it could have saved a hell of a lot of, of grief for for all parties. So um yeah, it just it just wasn't a nice a nice period at all, wasn't it? I think I think you speak to anyone from that era and you know, I heard Jamie Carragher talking recently about, you know, the the embarrassment now of looking back and you know, of them wearing those t shirts at Wigan. Um yeah. You know, it's you, know, you just you just cringe a bit, don't you? Because it was, you know, it was, um, and it was, you know, it's it's a very complex, you know, and it is a, you know, it it was a it was a very complex issue, and I don't think I don't think Suarez was given as much. I don't I don't think anyone at the club did did Suarez any favors in actual fact by backing him the way you know probably at the time Suarez probably thought, you know, oh, this means the world to me, the fact that they've got my back and all the rest of it. Yeah. But what he actually did need was someone to go to him. Well, no, I don't. I don't care less what you meant. You were you know, wrong. You, you, yeah, wrong. yeah, yeah, yeah. And hold your hands up. Take your, you know, take the punishment, and let's let's move on. And um, yeah, I think you know some painful lessons were learned from, from were learned from how Liverpool handled all that. Yeah, sorry, John. The last one. Oh, sorry, to fire quickly before yeah, you Yeah, no, I was going to say, like, I was reading um, something Carragher said about Suarez the other day, and he was basically saying after he bit Ivanovic in the arm, he denied it, like, constantly. Like, he denied it for a while, and they were like, oh, but there's proof. And he's like, no, I didn't mean to do it. Like, how do you not mean to bite someone in the arm? Like, you either yeah. did it or you didn't. But I guess that kind of shows the character Suarez actually was at the time. And and also, also, why, why do you think like, it took the club a long time to apologise? Because... Having said that, that was what happened, what, 2011? And ever received the apology in 2019 or something like that? So why do you think it took the club so long to rectify that? Not rectify it, but... Yeah, you know, um, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. I think I think probably just because it came back into the kind of the public consciousness again, I think because Ever had done a... I think he, he'd given a couple of interviews, hadn't he? And, and, it, and it, it was... And I think it just suddenly kind of... I don't, I don't think it was, you know, I, I remember speaking to people at Liverpool, you know, certainly, you know, the owners, you know, not long, not long after that were like, oh my God, you know, how badly, how badly has this been, been handled and how we wish, you know, if only we could turn back the clock, we would have done things, done things differently. I think, so I, I, I don't think it, I don't think it was just kind of in the last six or nine months that Liverpool have suddenly kind of thought to themselves, Oh, do you know what? You know, we we handled that badly. We need to apologise. I think it was just more the fact that it it kind of came back into the in into the kind of the the, the public arena with with Everett talking about things and and someone at Liverpool. I think it was Peter Moore that that wrote the letter. Um, clearly, you know, feeling that you know, okay, you know, internally we might have accepted for a long time that we did wrong, but you know, why don't why don't we hold our hands up publicly and actually write to Patrice Everett? Um, and you know, I think that was the the right thing to do. But yeah, I don't I don't think it was a case of it it had taken them that long to kind of realise that they'd handled it badly because I think I think there was a you know a realisation 
you know that um, you know certainly you know, you know that the, it should have you know it, it you know it could it you know that Liverpool could have saved themselves a huge amount of grief if if they'd um, reacted very differently to that to that situation. Uh, obviously, there's been uh, there was no shortage of initial teething problems and uh, transfer issues for FSG kind of um, in the following years before. Obviously, Michael Edwards um, kind of asserted control uh, of that domain, um, and obviously with the 77 minute walkout over ticket prices, um, how, how do you feel re- reporting on that? And what do you remember from certain transfers? I mean, the ones that come to mind for me are the proposed Clint Dempsey for Jordan Henderson swap. Um, Two of which I actually followed your Twitter account and you're reporting quite closely on were the, the initial Mohamed Salah transfer and the um, unsigned document for Conor Plianka in um, 2014. Yeah. So what are your kind of like memories on, on that? Yeah, it was... Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, again, it, it just... Even though it's actually not that long ago, it feels like such a long time ago because Liverpool Football Club is such a different entity now than it was... Back then, I mean, I, I did a piece for the Athletic recently, kind of um, looking back on being Liverpool, the, the TV documentary from 2012, and um, and even when you watch that back, and you know, it's it's frightening really to you know the you know the the big fuss that's made about signing kind of um, you know Usama Rasaidi and and Barini, and and you just think, oh my God, you know that that was that was like deemed you know an exciting acquisition back then. Um, <laughs> And, you know, I think there's a few factors, I think, when I think back to that period. One was how much Liverpool struggled to attract top players because, you know, they didn't have a big name manager who could really pull them in. Um, they also didn't have, they weren't in a position financially to to throw big money at it. You know, I, I, I do have sympathy for Brendan Rodgers when, you know, some of the people kind of pick apart some of his some of the decisions he made. I know certainly in the early stages of his tenure at Liverpool, I mean, he was told, you know, you need to sign players who are 24 and under. You know, it's it's very much about untapped potential rather than buying the finished article. And and um, so, you know, and that, and that was one of the reasons why FSG refused to sanction the deal for Clint Dempsey, because I think you know, he was, I don't know exactly how old, he must have been 30 probably at the time. 29, 30. 29, 30, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and it, it wasn't a huge amount of money. I think he, I think he ended up going for what was it, five or six million. But Liverpool, you know, were weren't prepared to to shell out that. Of course, they offered Jordan Henderson as a make weight in the deal, and thankfully, Jordan Henderson said no thanks. I'll I'll stay and fight for my place. But yeah, you're right. There was there was a lot of sagas that followed that, where you know Liverpool tried and and failed to attract players either because of the money or because of the the lack of pulling power and, um, you know, and there, there were, you know, I think of, you know, Salah was a good example, you know, William, William went ended up going to, going to Chelsea, you know, Liverpool in for him. I remember Liverpool being very confident of getting Diego Costa when they felt that, you know, I remember someone at Liverpool confirming to me the information I had that Liverpool had, had triggered his release clause in his contract at Atletico. Um, and then, they, you know, they were en- ended up, you know, gutted because it turned out, you know, it, essentially it wasn't uh, it wasn't a clause that that they had to keep to, and that and that Costa's people were just using Liverpool's interest to get him a better contract, um, and that was almost where Liverpool were at, you know, being you know being used at times and their name thrown into the mix by people just to just to get better deals elsewhere, and yeah, Kona Plianka was a crazy one where you had you know Ian Air and deepest darkest ukraine chasing around the um i think it was the, the do, you, do you miss reporting on ian air and his stories because <laughs> i feel like he gave, us, he gave us some great times <laughs> yeah yeah he was i mean it was crazy i remember you know and i think because because that was obviously followed on from various other deals that that didn't happen and you know i think ian air and other people at liverpool knew that it was like Ian is going to get, you know, an absolute, you know, shoe in for this because, you know, another deal's not happened. Um, so they were they were very keen to, you know, sometimes it can be quite difficult gleaning details on, you know, transfers that do or don't happen. But, um, yeah, I remember seeing the paperwork that actually showed that Liverpool 
had actually made the first payment for Kona Plyanka because, you know, it was in terms of putting it into like a holding fund um, that then, you know, to almost prove to the Dunupro owner that, you know, this is how serious we are. This is the, and, and, you know, but the the owner basically, he was, I can't can't remember the name of the owner, but he was, you know, he was a a, billionaire that, and, you know, as far as he was concerned, he didn't. He didn't give give a damn about this release clause. As far you know, it, it, he just wanted Kunapianka to stay put because he was the star man, and just came up with every possible excuse under the sun not to sign the paperwork. To you know, so I think Ian Air ended up you know spending spending the best part of a week in Ukraine and coming back empty handed. <laughs> but um, yeah, there was you know, and then I mean it was a crazy period because then you had this that that thing as well where it was always that friction of players that did come in, you know, is that a committee signing? Is that a Rogers signing? Um, and then there was always this suspicion that maybe the players that Rogers had really pushed for himself, um, that they were you know, probably given more opportunities and kept faith with a bit more than those that other people on the transfer committee had, had really pushed for. So, um, yeah, would I must you said the most, um, Would you say the most glaring issue with that would be kind of uh, in the, the end of Rogers' last season where it was Benteke and Firmino? Yeah, and I'm, I've, and I think you know when you think of ludicrous, ludicrous situations, you know uh, that has to be right up there, doesn't it? The fact that there was this almost you know trade-off where you know the the, the committee and you know I know Michael Edwards was very very keen on on Roberto Firmino and Rogers less so. Um, he wanted Benteke and. You know, I remember that summer Liverpool were adamant they weren't going to trigger Benteke's release clause. I think it what was it, thirty-two million pounds or something. And um, you know, I think and then eventually, I think I'm sure it was in Australia. I think it was Brisbane on a pre-season tour when when Liverpool, someone at Liverpool turned around and said, you know, we're we're, we're gonna we're gonna trigger it. And you were thinking, you know, I wonder, you know, and then you know, then you find out subsequently, yeah, there, there was this kind of agreement. Well, you know, if yeah, if you're willing to take Firmino. We'll let you have Benteke. Um, so yeah, absolutely, absolutely crazy when you think of the sums of money involved. And um, yeah, I felt sorry for Benteke because I don't, you know, he, of course, you know, the manager that bought him was gone within a few months. And then, you know, I think we all knew that you know he was a very honest player, really nice fella as well off the pitch, but completely unsuited to the way that Jurgen Klopp plays football. Yeah. Um... You mentioned that car crash of a documentary slash mockumentary in um, being Liverpool. Um, what did you think of like the media's portrayal, the fans' portrayal of Raheem Sterling, especially starting in in that documentary? You know where he said, "What did he?" I can't remember what he said to Rogers, but they made a big, a big deal out of it. But yeah, steady, that's steady. it. <laughs> and then, you know, kind of that kind of led into I feel like his time at Liverpool, even when he was playing well, there was always you know, something, there was another story whether he's had 10 kids or he's asking for uh, 200,000 a week or whatever it may be. How do you feel like the media uh, contributed to how Sterling was portrayed? And uh, it's a bit of a loaded question. And how do you feel as a reporter, you kind of verified whether what you was told behind the scenes or in confidence was true by someone? Yeah, well, I think... Yeah, yeah, but I mean, in terms of Sterling, I think, um, I think, yeah, I think looking back now, I think being Liverpool didn't do him any favours in terms of the way that he was perceived by by some people. Because I think, you know, it was, and it was interesting speaking to someone at Liverpool who was who was involved heavily in the putting together of being Liverpool, and not surprisingly, Liverpool were keen for for, for that bust up with Rodgers on the training ground in Boston to be removed from the series completely. Um, you know, but the, the, the deal that Liverpool had done with Fox didn't, you know, I think these days the agreements are very different. You know, you, if, for example, you look at the Man City one, you know, you can guarantee Man City would have been, you know, would have had 100 percent, you know, um, content approval on that. Liverpool didn't have that would be in Liverpool. Um, there was almost like a committee of people from Liverpool, people from Fox and someone from FSG. And, um, and, and the deal was essentially that they could use anything they wanted as long as it didn't give away anything to do with tactics or strategy ahead of games. And of course, you know, the, the bust up between Rodgers and Sterling didn't. So 
you know, I think Liverpool were keen for it to get taken taken down. You know, in the end, I, I got told that it was actually an edited version that, that got broadcast in that series. Um, but, you know, it still didn't do Sterling any favours, did it? I think, you know, and I found out that, he, you know, he was actually complaining during the session that he'd had his... I think Rodgers had accused him of almost going to ground too easily during a training game. Uh, and he was adamant that someone had stepped on his foot. Um, and then, you know, Rodgers claimed that he heard him say steady. Raheem said he didn't say steady. And then, of course, Rodgers then, you know, makes a bit of an example out of him in front of all the all the other young players, you know, as if to say, you know, you know, no, no one's taking liberties with me, son. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in t- do you know what? I think it's, it's really difficult, actually. I, I don't think anyone came out of the Sterling-Liverpool thing you know, brilliantly in terms of covering themselves in glory. I think I, I certainly wouldn't. I, th- I think it's too simplistic to say that Liverpool deliberately painted him in a bad light because I, I don't think they did. You know, I think I think Liverpool were, were were great for Raheem Sterling in terms of really launching his career, and Raheem Sterling was brilliant for Liverpool. You know, apps such an exciting talent. I I, I think he he got some bad advice in terms of the way that he conducted himself before he left Liverpool. Um, Cause I think when you take the emotion out of it, that summer that he left Liverpool, um, you know, Liverpool were, you know, you know, the wheels had come off Rogers's managerial reign, hadn't they? You know, the six, one defeat at Stoke, you know, you know, the, the, the you know, Steven Gerrard walking away. I, you know, I don't, you know, for, for a lad with no like massive emotional attachment to Liverpool, I can understand why Raheem Sterling looked at that and thought, you know, how long is it going to be before Liverpool are going to be in a position to challenge for trophies again? It, yeah. um, and I want to play Champions League football. And and I think that if he, if he just, you know, I, I just think some of the antics that from his agent and from him, and Liverpool weren't immune from that. Of course, you know, Liverpool, you know, there's when you've got a contract standoff like that, you get a lot of people briefing and counter briefing and you know you know and you get you know hearsay about what's going on in the discussions and all the rest of it but you know I think I remember he did that I remember Raheem did that interview with the BBC when he talked about you know being flattered by Arsenal's interest and and then one minute it was in one paper that you know his relationship with Rodgers had broken down and you know the next day it was I want to play Champions League football then it was the money's not good enough with the new contract offer and, and I just think all of that contributed to to now all the stick that he gets when he comes back to Anfield with Man City. When I think, I think you know, it is possible to leave a football club without all that acrimony. And and you know, I think the other thing that's sometimes overlooked with Raheem Sterling is Liverpool named their price forty nine million pound that summer, and they ended up getting the asking price. City, I think, had two bids rejected before they accepted it. So. If it, I know, and if Sterling and his representatives had not gone down the road of, you know, of going public with their, with you know, with how unhappy they were quite so often, I think he could have gone with, with you know, not every fan, of course, but I think a lot of fans would have understood his reasons for going. But I think what left a bad taste for me was the fact that there was there seemed to be a lot of games being played. Um, and I don't think that did Raheem Sterling any any favours in terms of how Liverpool fans, you know, certainly a lot of Liverpool fans look upon him, which I think is a shame because he's a he's an unbelievable talent, and I and I've got a lot of admiration for the way that um, you know, the way that he's conducted himself since. I think he's done a lot of growing up since then. Yeah, I think um just a little bit on that. I think uh, everybody, like you said, nobody came out, you know, looking the best in that in that situation. I do feel like Liverpool kind of didn't help themselves like at the end of the 13-14 season should have offered him a renewal there and then. Yeah, that's Tony true. Evans, Tony Evans mentioned that um, his first contract when he was offered, you know, a renewal when he, the one he did sign, you know, in his first season, it should have been a lot higher because he was playing ahead of Downing who was on triple the wages. So it was almost like, you know, they were asking for money to claw back what he felt he had lost. Um, and I just feel like it was managed poorly on all sides. I do feel as if uh, Brendan Rodgers, you know, didn't help the situation. And I, I read an article, I can't remember who by, uh, but Sterling believed that Rodgers was playing a game. And, you know, when the 
cameras would come out to record training. Rogers would make sure he's next to Sterling and little things like that irritated him. Um, but yeah, like you said, nobody covered themselves in much glory in that situation. Yeah. You know, and, you know, we're all better for it now anyway. So, yeah. Interesting. Just to, uh, just to quickly follow up on that, I thought it was really interesting when you did your, uh, your fan survey on The Athletic uh, from last week and how many people would actually be open to uh, Raheem Sterling return. I thought that was quite uh, quite interesting. Just following <laughs> up on what we talked about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, was, uh, you know I was, I was, uh, I was really surprised actually. I think it was only, I think it was only about a third of um, of the people that responded to the survey said they, you know, one hundred percent would be against him coming back one day. Which, um, you know, I, I think probably if I'd if I'd had a guess before I'd seen the results, I'd have probably gone for sixty, seventy, maybe even eighty yeah. percent. Of do, you think do you think it's because of the demographic of your readership? So the people yeah, that took the poll, because obviously I saw that it was a younger group of people that were actually yeah, yeah. that were active on the poll. So I feel as if maybe our age range, the twenty-five plus age range, for example, are a bit more sy- sympathetic towards Sterling, in a sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think there's def- that's definitely part of it. Yeah, and and I think you know hope maybe as well when you actually take a step back and you think about it, you know he regardless of whether you particularly like the way that he conducted himself um, or not, you know, or whether you've got some sympathy because, you know, it, over time you've appreciated that, you know what, Liverpool didn't handle that particularly well either. He, he is an elite talent, isn't he? I think, you know, and yeah. I think that's probably what swung a lot of people was that, well, do you know what, you know, if, if, if this fella wanted to come back to Liverpool at some point in the future, and I, I, I still think, you know, it's, it's it's massively massively unlikely for for a host of reasons not you know not least you know relations between Liverpool and Man City are hardly uh, are hardly cordial so mm-hmm. you know the idea that City would, would would be willing to do business with Liverpool is is um, you know pretty far fetched and then you know when you factor in his wages and you know, I think I think he's still got what three maybe even four years left on his deal at City so. Um, but yeah, that was an interesting one. But I think you're right. Yeah, it probably does. I think that is linked to the the, the demographic as well because um, yeah, I think um, I don't I don't think the result would be quite the same if if um, it, you know if, if you were stood outside the cop the, uh, the the next time there's a full house at Anfield and you were asking people. Yeah, okay, true. Quickly, quickly because I'm aware of, of of time. Given that I heard last week that he's coming back or a couple of days ago that he's coming back. How was it writing on Carius's dis- disaster class against Madrid in the Champions League final? <laughs> yeah, it was horrendous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was. Were yeah, you seething yourself as a fan, and you were trying to be objective whilst writing the, these pieces, and you were just struggling? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, I mean, it was really hard to try. And I remember being just sat there, kind of shell shocked in that. You know, long after most people had, had left the ground in Kiev, and you. You're right. You're trying to get that balance right between you. You know, you can't get away from the fact that this fella's meltdown has cost Liverpool the Champions League final. But <laughs> you, you, you're also trying to be humane in terms of picking the right words and yeah. Um, because you know, no, you know, regardless of what anyone thought about Carius before that night or whatever they think about him since, you know, you yeah. it, it was horrible to see someone suffer like that in the you know the biggest biggest night of his life um and yeah i mean it was you know and and, you know again that you know that turned into almost like a saga that you didn't really see coming with then of course you know liverpool sending him off for all these tests and then you know the, the the statement from the club about how he'd been concussed um but uh yeah i mean it's a shame, actually, what's happened to him in, in Turkey, because you, you kind of thought, you know, I, I remember, I think it was at Chester in that pre-season friendly the following summer after Kiev. Yeah, and yeah, just, yeah. You, you saw then he was, his head was absolutely, you know, frazzled, I think, on, still from the fallout from Kiev and, you know, making like really, really basic errors. And you know, he needed to get away to try and to, to try and get his career back on track. It hasn't, you know, he. I don't think he's done quite as badly in Turkey as sometimes it's been portrayed because we only tend to really see the the blunders that get that get played on on social media. But you know, it's, I, I wrote on the Athletic back in January time. I think that there was no chance that Besiktas were going to keep him. They'd already decided then that they were going to send him back. And of course, now with the the issues over his his salary not being paid in full, that he, he's come back. But I 
you know, I would be absolutely amazed if he played for Liverpool again. Um, sure. You know, I, 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 I think he'll, I think Liverpool will find another club for him this, this summer. Um, and yeah, I just, yeah, I, you know, it's, it's been various talk, hasn't it, about Adrian in terms of what's going to happen with him. And, you know, I, I know there were some stories going around about him potentially going back to Spain and, and Betis, but Certainly the last time I checked that out, which was probably two, three weeks ago now, I was told that, you know, that was news to Liverpool. And as far as they were concerned, Adrian would would still be around for next season. And if and if Adrian is, is around as the number two, then then clearly there's no space for carriers at Liverpool. Yeah, that's a fair point. So talking of transfers in the summer, there's one name I'm gonna to give to you, James. The Timo Werner update. What have you got for us? Because this name <laughs> does not seem to go away. It's no. getting very annoying now. But yeah, what 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 are you thinking with this transfer saga? Do you think it could possibly happen? Like from a percentage scale, like what would you give it? Oh god! I mean, it was. Do you know what? And I'm 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 not deliberately sitting on the fence, but I just think it's impossible to say either way at the moment. Um, so probably, you know, probably fifty-fifty, just because um, you know, and, and you know, the, that comes down to the financial realities of the coronavirus pandemic. Because um, as I've written a couple of times on the Athletic, all transfer activity for Liverpool is effectively on hold, mm-hmm. um, and it has been for the last you know five six weeks. And I think you know, from what I've been told, the club are waiting to see what kind of shape they're in financially when the time comes between seasons, you know, which you know, we don't even know when that's going to be between seasons yet. Um, whether they're in a position uh, that they feel that they can commit that kind of, that kind of money, because um, you know, I know people say, Oh, it's only 50 million or 52 million and, you know, and he's a bargain. And I agree. I think in, in, you know, if you rewind a couple of months, I, I think it was an absolute no-brainer of a deal for Liverpool for someone of his caliber, especially when you factor in Mane and Salah potentially going off to the Africa Cup of Nations and leaving them, losing them for a key period next season. I think Liverpool desperately need to invest in another top-end attacking player, and I, I really like Werner. I think, you know, as everyone would have read and heard from the interviews that he's done himself. I don't think he could have done any more to make it abundantly clear how much he wants to play for Jurgen Klopp and how much he wants to play for Liverpool. Um, but, I, you know, the, the reason why it's 50-50 is I don't think, I don't think, I don't think some fans who obviously, you know, there's always this clamour to bring in new faces. I don't think they fully appreciate the financial impact of coronavirus, even, even on elite, you know, very, you know, rich in terms of, um, you know, value a club like Liverpool, just because, you know, Liverpool's, Liverpool have got an annual wage bill of £310 million a year. Yeah. Um, and, and yes, they turn over a lot of money, but but they haven't had a penny coming in since, yeah. you know, there's been, there's been no gate receipts. There's been, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty at the moment in terms of the, the broadcaster payments. Um, and, and even on the commercial side, you know, Liverpool struck what they still hope will be a very lucrative kit deal with Nike that kicks in this summer. But, you know, even the structure of that deal is is heavily reliant on shops all around the globe being open because it they took a lower base fee in return for, for, for getting 20% of all royalties. And you know, even, even that, you know, it, it, if, if this goes on, you know, much longer and if, you know, and if then it returns in the winter and there's another another lockdown, you know that that's going to have financial implications. And um, so there's a yeah, there's a lot of things to factor in at the moment, um, which which means it, it's just impossible to say. You know, if if I think if Liverpool are gonna if Liverpool are gonna make a big signing mm. in between in between this season finishing and next season starting, then I think it will be Timo Werner, but. You know, there are no guarantees at the moment that they will make a big signing. Um, obviously, just going on the corona coronavirus point, uh, do you think obviously for this transfer window uh, more than any of any other transfer windows? Um, obviously, Michael Edwards has done an amazing job uh, finding value in transfers. You know, just you know, just to name a few, Wine uh, Aldum. Uh, Minamino quite recently too do you think this is possibly one of his most ideal 
probably for lack of better words, ideal scenario in terms of unearthing talent for uh, reasonable fees and in terms of potential development as well. Yeah, I mean, I th- certainly, I I think when you speak to people in Liverpool, they're, they 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 still primarily their efforts, and you know, maybe not so much this summer because I don't I don't think this summer would have been you know I don't think that Liverpool would have signed that many players anyway before this happened this summer because the squad's so strong anyway. But mm. um, yeah, certainly going forward, they still see you know uh, you know their their primary focus is almost trying to find the next superstar rather than than buy the current superstar if you like so you know th- you know there's a lot of fanciful talk in there about Mbappe and you know it made me laugh a few weeks few I think a few weeks ago now when I read somewhere that someone said you know I think it was I think it might have even been a journalist somewhere wrote that Mbappe would be open to joining Liverpool if if they were to pay the 300 million pound fee and he just <laughs> like yeah I think I think the back end of that sentence might be the problem the problem area so um so yeah i think yeah michael edwards will you know and, and the the analytics team who, who do such amazing work they they will be looking at minamino type deals but i i just think you know there's, there's all kinds of implications for liverpool on the back of this because i think you know before this happened they would have expected to have generated quite a lot of money this summer probably from selling harry wilson and marco gruwich mm. i think you know mm-hmm. I, I think probably could have got 35 40 million pounds for the two of them combined um you know there was they, they were looking at selling shakiri for 15 million um you know I, I i realistically i don't see with the way that the, the financial impact of coronavirus i don't see liverpool getting offered those kind of fees so then then that, that leaves big decisions for michael edwards and klopp to make because it's like you know, with with a Shakiri, with a Wilson or a Gruwich, if if the money isn't there, that that's nowhere near what you think he's worth, then do you then are you better off keeping hold of them for a year, and then and then putting on hold potentially, you know, spend spending money on bringing in a new player and even someone like Day and Lovren. You know, I, if you'd asked me two months ago, I'd have thought. I'd have thought, you know, what Lovren will want to leave this summer. You know, he 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 thought about leaving and came close to leaving last summer. And if he goes, Klopp probably does need to bring in another centre half. But you know, now you're probably looking at it. And you know, if you're if you're Lovren, you, you probably don't have the kind of offers that you probably thought you were going to. Suddenly, Liverpool won't have the same kind of offers for him. Mm. So that, you know, that might change as well. So yeah, there's so much up in the air at the moment. Uh, do you see the club having, um, a, you know, keep can maintain that interest in, you know, the elite younger players in Europe as well? Uh, you know, the, the main two who always seem to make headlines are obviously Jaden Sancho and Kai Havertz, um, and other players such as kind of Hassan Oar from Lyon. So, do you see them maintaining an interest in those type of players for this summer and beyond? Um, I don't, I don't think, I don't think Sancho. I think Sancho was only, is, you know. Klopp, I think I'm sure Klopp's gone on record before talking about his admiration for Sancho, um, but you know I, I was told that, you know, that I think Dortmund want kind of like 120 million or something for him. I, I I just think a deal like that is only realistic if one of the current front three were to turn round and you know and you know if purely hypothetically speaking if if Salah or Mane or Firmino was to say right I want to. I want to leave. I want to go to Real Madrid or whatever. Then I think, then I think Sancho becomes someone who Liverpool would definitely be be interested in. But you know, the, the, the reality is Liverpool are planning for the future with the front three they've got currently on board. You know, all three of them have still got their best their best football ahead of them. I I believe so. Um, so no, you know, and I, I'm not sure there's a club anywhere that would spend 120 million pound on a on a signing that that doesn't walk into the starting lineup. So, um, and the same with Havertz, I think, you know, again, it's like some people say like, you know, are, you know, do Liverpool have an interest in him? And it's why, well, it's like, well, well, yeah, of course, you know, he's, he's absolutely, you know, he's an elite player. Of course he's on Liverpool's radar, but again, I think he probably fits into the, the Sancho category in, in terms of Liverpool feel that at the moment, you know, in terms of what they need and what, what it would cost to get him, that it's it's probably not not realistic unless they were to suddenly lose someone and a and a gap in the gap in the squad opened up. Fair point. All right, cool. So we've got a few listeners' questions. We we were inundated with tweets. So I'm gonna 
try and filter through a couple of them um, really quickly. So we had one from P. Child where he asked, which hashtag announce drove you insane? And do you bother <laughs> engaging with them anymore? So throughout the years, we've had Royce, we've had... Mbappe, like which one out of all of the ones you've had since being it would, on it would have to be it would have to be Fakir. Fakir, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. I still I still Fakir get people Friday. the um not that not that I go running that often, but I I still I have actually had it where I've been running along the, the front by the Mersey in Liverpool and some fella just winding his window down and shouting at me announce Fakir. Um, <laughs> so it was yeah, I'd say that's probably the one that does my head in more than any other. Just and, and you know, again, that was a that was an absolutely crazy one where you know it's not very often that, that a player pulls on a Liverpool shirt, does a does an interview with the club media channel, um, and then still doesn't end up joining the club. So um, so yeah, I think announced for Kier probably just because also that that saga well and truly ruined ruined a few family family meals and days out as well. I think with. Uh, having to suddenly uh, suddenly call a halt to it and get the laptop out. Yeah. <laughs> and um, at Matty underscore J asks, what are the chances of Coutinho coming back, especially with Barcelona's financial problems right now? Um, yeah, I'd, I'd say rem- pretty remote, I think. Um, and I, I think... I, I just I, I would just be amazed if, if, if Liverpool took him back. Because I think... I think for a number of reasons. I think you know, the the only thing that the only thing that even makes me think there's a minute chance is if the price was to drop to a level where you suddenly thought, well, hang on a minute, at that price, then we'd be stupid not to not to be in the the conversation. But I, yeah, I I just think there's there's other clubs that probably feel like they'll need him and and be willing to pay a lot more. And I and I just think also. You know, whenever I've spoken to Klopp about Coutinho and and he's you know I, I always think he thinks that Liverpool have evolved without Coutinho and they've actually become a lot more unpredictable um, and and I and I actually think it would be a backward step and also I don't think you know he didn't he didn't cover himself in glory towards the end Coutinho with the way that he conducted himself and Back you know the way that yeah yeah the you know the faking of the injury of the of the you know well. We say faking. He, well, it was, it, let's just say it was a big coincidence. Faking, he, got, um, he, got a, he got a back injury on the. I think it was a back injury the same day that Mike Gordon told him he definitely wasn't going anywhere, and uh, <laughs> that was when they were in Munich for a, a pre-season game. So, um, yeah, and when you yeah, and when you think, you know, I remember, I remember asking Klopp, you know, why, you know, what, why, you know, why did you not just tell him he had to stay to the end of the season? Why sell? you know, who at the time was viewed as your best player midway through the season, you know, does it not send the wrong the wrong message out? And Klopp said, we reached a point within where we felt we couldn't even use him. So you think, well, if, you know, and that's a quite a stark thing for a manager to say, you know, which which I think gives you an insight into into what he was like around the place by that point, because he was so desperate to get away. So, um, yeah, I'd be I'd be very surprised if we saw him back at Liverpool. Cool stuff. And final question from me, James. In 2015, you famously called me a very rude man. Do you still stand by that <laughs> wild allegation? <laughs> what, are, you, are you willing to divulge what uh, what you what you said to me? I am not going to divulge what was said. All I am going to say is you called me a very rude man, and that tweet went viral. <laughs> <laughs> right, I've got. I now got to look back over my old tweets to try and find out what. <laughs> I'll make sure to delete before you find it. <laughs> I think we can wrap. I think we can wrap up. Um, wrap up things here, James. Thank you so much for being our special guest this week. Thank you. Um, thank you. Look forward to having you on. Awesome. After we're hopefully, crown champions. Before so we awesome. go, would you like to quickly yeah. plug the athletic with our listeners? Uh, yeah, yeah, that would be great. Yeah, if you get on over to um, theathletic.co.uk, there's a 90-day free trial at the moment. If everyone, anyone wants to just uh, have a look for the next three months and see if they if they enjoy it, you know, all the all the hopefully the best Liverpool coverage from myself and and Simon Hughes and you know. I, I, uh, I really enjoy it. I great. Yeah, we're massive. Cheers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's exclusive interviews on there with with your Klopp, with uh, with Pep Linders and. 
Trent Alexander-Arnold. And you know, this week I did a, a big piece with um, Florence Cinema Pongal, which I, I really enjoyed. He was um, absolutely fascinating having a having an hour on the phone with him. So um, yeah, hopefully get on over to, to the Athletic and enjoy all that. Amazing. Ellis, Farouk and Krish, pleasure as always. to ride Metro, we want you to know we're ready for you. Here are just a few of the people at Metro to tell you how we're doing our part to keep riders safe. We're cleaning like never before. We're hospital grade cleaning. You'll find hand sanitizer stations all over the Metro. No mask, no Metro. Need one? We have a few extras. At Metro, we're doing our part to keep the D.C. area moving. Find out more at wmata.com slash doing our part. Podcast Network.